God, today we come before you humbled by your love and incredible mercy and grace. We come in tears and a little bit shaken by the reality that we are far more valuable in your sight than we are even in our own eyes. We come humbled and shaken by the fact that our enemies are far more valuable in your sight than in our own eyes. We come humbled and shaken by the reality that your voice should ring more clearly in our minds than the hurtful voices of the past and the distorted voice of our own spirit. Oh God, we ask that you penetrate all of this with your Holy Spirit and transform our nature so that we might not give in to the hard feelings towards ourselves and others, that we might not give in to the voices of the past, that we might not give in to the psychological confusion. We pray, Lord, that you, the creator of all things, would heal everything that is out of balance in us and restore us to a stable, smooth relationship with you and all of creation. We pray, Lord, that we might feel your joy in us, that we might feel the love you have for us that comes from simply smiling with delight as you watch us, even when we don't know you're looking. Pray, Lord, that we might begin to see ourselves and each other with the same simple joy and then celebrate the diversity of your creation, the amazing multicolored, multifaceted humanity that you made. We pray, Lord, that we might see you with absolute clarity and see you for who you are and recognize that you never change and your precepts never change, your truth never changes and therefore we must not give in to the ebb and flow of society and personality influenced and afflicted attitudes. Rather, Lord, let us hear your voice plainly speaking truth in love, especially as we come now to study your word and hear whatever wisdom you have for us this day with the help of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the name of our Lord, our King, Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we're going to read again from the book of Ecclesiastes. If you have a Bible handy or a device or something, then I would invite you to join me in reading it. We'll read verses 7 to 17 of chapter 9. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 7 to 17. We'll start with that. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white, let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life and the wife whom you love, all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because 
That is your portion in life, in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I had also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner, one sinner destroys much good. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, as usual, when we are reading the word of Ecclesiastes, we have to apply a little bit of divine imagination. A friend of mine calls it that, a little literary license. Um, just as an aside, I want to encourage you in your Bible study to take the, the challenge that I'll issue now of reading the entire Bible. Many of us have experienced reading scripture and, and uh, have certain favorites we like to go to and, and so forth. And, and for many people, this is the only scripture you're hearing in, in the week is the one you hear me reading. But, but I encourage you to consider taking the plunge and reading the entire Bible. It won't be easy and it will require great discipline and you can do it in as little as 90 days. I've had a number of opportunities in the past where I've led the church in a 90-day reading of the Bible, and it went really well. And as usual, there were people who gave up pretty early, and there were those who finished late, but those who did found the benefit in it. Perhaps you can use a reading plan that gives you scripture every day, and over the course of a year, you can read the entire Bible. But I really want to commend to you the task of reading the entire Bible. Not because any part of the Bible is insufficient in and of itself, because the amazing thing about the Word of God with a capital W is it's the expression of the mind and heart of God, and that comes through loudly and clearly to anyone who would dare to read it. And if you read it out loud, it even has more power. It's a little bit like that God inhabits praise statement. Somehow when you read Scripture out loud, something amazing happens. And so I urge you to do this. But... You can use a little bit more divine imagination when you have the big picture in mind while you're reading scripture. An awareness of Solomon's life, for example, and his family history, 
and a little bit about where things went after the time of Solomon will make it easier to understand Ecclesiastes, which frankly is depressing. And you say to yourself, why is there a book in the Bible that's so depressing? Well, for one thing, the Bible is remarkable in all the holy literature for all the various religions of the world in that it doesn't mind exposing you to all of its colorful characters. And it even has a very depressing book. And I would say in all reality that it, at this writing, when Solomon sat down to write Ecclesiastes, he was clinically depressed. I'm convinced of it. I'm, I'm convinced that Solomon was clinically depressed. Because of all the times he says, I honestly think dead people are better off than I feel right now. Now that's not a, a mark of clinical depression, okay? I mean, he, he says this repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes. So I really think at this stage when he was writing this, he was depressed. And we're going to really unpack that over the next few minutes because not that he was depressed, but, but we're going to interpret what he's saying through his depression and we're going to figure out why he was depressed. And then we're going to figure out how not to be where he is at the time he wrote this. And that, my friends, is probably why God wanted this book in the Bible. Because God, with God's wonderful sense of humor, says, well, there are a lot of ways I can tell you how to have a full and enriching life in faith. But sometimes the best lessons are learned by someone who shows you all the wrong ways to do things. And I must admit that there are a lot of successes I've experienced in my life that came from watching people who failed and saying, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and so here we are. Solomon, as you know, by now was the richest man in the world at the time and the most powerful man. He was pretty to look at and he smelled good and he had lots of girlfriends and wives and he had lots of, of, of attention and fame. And, you know, he was an international celebrity. But he was miserable at the time he writes this. And he says, as we've read before, and I just picture him, you know, I, I could see Solomon. Um, anybody ever see the really terrific uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie, Rear Window? You know, he's like, he's like Jimmy Stewart in Rear Window. Solomon is sitting on his porch looking out his his, uh, over his town, his, his city of Jerusalem there, and he watches day by day the comings and goings of various people, and, and he gets focused on these people who live in the poor side of town, and, and he feels, after watching them day after day after day, because, you know, he's, he's rich and powerful, he's bored. <laughs> doesn't have enough to do, because everything's done for him. He doesn't have anything to achieve, because he's got everything he wants and more. So what does he do? He sits and watches people, and he realizes that the poor man who gets up every day at the same time and the poor woman who gets up every day at the same time and she goes to the well to get water for her daily chores and he goes to do whatever work that will provide for his family's needs and they both come home tired and weary at the end of the day and and they sit in their house with their family and tell stories of the day and eat the food that they worked hard to produce and then they go to bed and they rest easy because they worked hard and he says they're better off than I am they've got it better than me this king, this celebrity, this wealthy man. And so he's depressed because he's realized that he appears to have it all, but he has nothing. And so today he speaks of wisdom. And what I've come to realize as I've studied on this and in, in, in self-examination, I've come to realize that wisdom is not going to happen 
without contentment. And contentment isn't going to happen without wisdom. The dictionary definition of wisdom is this. Wisdom, sapience, or sagacity. Aren't those great words? Is the ability to think and act using knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, and insight. Wisdom is associated with unbiased judgment, compassion, experiential self-knowledge, self-transcendence, and non-attachment, and virtues such as ethics and benevolence. So that's the dictionary, Webster's Dictionary definition of the word wisdom. And I thought, okay, the Bible tells us that when he first became aware that he was going to be Israel's next king and that it was his job to take the foundation that his father had built for him, King David, and really grow it into a great theocratic nation or a nation devoted to God. He, he said, man, there's no way I can handle this. Lord, of all the things I could ask for, the thing I want most is wisdom. It was a pretty good idea. And there were even examples of his wisdom in the early days that we still talk about today. But by the time we get to Ecclesiastes, what we see is this clinically depressed older gentleman who I think has even kind of forgotten the wisdom that he was given. I think he kind of forgot wisdom. And I'll tell you why I'm convinced of that, because he's discontented. And in my opinion, there's no way that a person can be really truly wise and not be content. Because wisdom by its very nature is transcendent. I love this part of the definition that says self-transcendence. Self-transcendence then is a self-awareness and not only that, but, but an awareness of, of one's nature. So you're not, you're not just aware of yourself, you're, you're also aware that there are certain things that just go with being human. That there's this instinct in you. I will bet you that everybody in this room has an equal measure of wisdom. What they lack is equal measures of application. We usually associate wisdom with older people, but in my experience, I have encountered young people who are very, very wise and older people who are very, very foolish. And so what's the difference? If it's just about accumulated knowledge and experience, then it would stand to reason that everyone over a certain age would be more wise than foolish. But that's not how it works. And you've heard the saying that is always attributed to Albert Einstein, but I'm not sure he actually said it this way. But, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And, and that is a better description of what folly is. Folly and foolishness are variations on the same word. And so when the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes that wisdom is better than folly, it's like, duh. You know, better to be wise than stupid or foolish. And, and yet what, what Solomon is driving at here and what he's saying, not only in his words, but in his example, is the true wisdom leads to contentment. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been a large portion of my life that was devoted to my discontent. And I have to admit that it was quite a breakthrough the day that I realized that I had finally reached a certain contentment. But it came with wisdom because wisdom is this not only accumulation of experience, but this transcendent sense of self 
that sort of takes not only the self-attained knowledge, but the general knowledge and awareness and applying all of it to every situation in life. You know, the old saying that those are who don't study history are doomed to repeat it. It's kind of like that. It's not just enough to study history, but to recognize history repeating itself is the transcendent quality of wisdom. To recognize that the more things change, the more they stay the same is the transcendent quality of wisdom. Wisdom and contentment go together in a way that makes you able to accept what we were talking about during prayer time in that we recognize in wisdom that we cannot probably ever expect to get the acceptance of the people that we're always trying to please. That we cannot ever really expect to find contentment in others my relationship with you isn't going to change how I feel about myself as much as my wisdom and my contentment is going to change how I feel about myself. You can't see God clearly and you can't feel how intensely God loves you without contentment. And wisdom is the key to contentment. Wisdom and something else I've realized. Now, in our reading today, Solomon says two things that really need to be repeated in context. He says, every day, get up in the morning, brush your teeth, comb your hair, put on some clean clothes and, and go about your business. And consider each day a gift, each relationship a gift, and each opportunity a gift. And when trouble comes your way, just accept it and deal with it. Because trouble comes to people whether or not they try to please God or don't care about how they feel or pleasing God or anything. And in other words, what he's saying is, is in God's eyes, you are who you are and you're accepted as who you are. And trouble comes not because of God's displeasure with you, just as much as God's, uh, as just as much as good things come to you because God is pleased with you. Let me say that again so I say it clearly. What Solomon is saying is, is I've got lots of stuff and I know that right now God's probably not happy with me. So it can't be because God loves me that I'm so prosperous. And there are people that I see every day who don't have a lot of stuff and they seem to always have troubles. And I'm pretty sure that that has nothing to do with how God feels about them. And so what he wants you to understand is that, that when bad things come your way, it isn't because God's mad at you. And when good things come your way, it's probably not because God is particularly pleased with you. This is Solomon talking. Certainly God blesses us at times. And certainly God allows us to experience testing at times. But it doesn't change how God feels about you. It just is what it is. That's the idea that 
Solomon is coming around to. And wisdom would suggest that he's right about that. My wisdom says to me, you know, that's about how it goes. That there have been lots of things in my life that some people would say were unfortunate and some might even dare to say were God's judgment on me. And yet I just look at them as things that happen and that I'm no better than anybody else and I'm not any more protected or, 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 or disregarded by God. It just happens. In fact, I've even learned, and I say this sincerely, I've even learned that some of the bad things that have happened in my life have turned out to be a privilege that God put on me. That God gave me an opportunity that a lesser person in God's sight might not have been able to withstand and prosper in. And you look at the times we're living in right now, and I remember predicting privately and probably publicly because sometimes I don't know when to shut up, um, you know, I saw this whole ordeal with the pandemic and I thought, you know, when this is over, we're going to remember who the givers and the takers were. We're going to remember who thrived in the midst of adversity and who just threw up their hands and felt sorry for themselves. And they're still hunkered down waiting for it to be over right now. And that that's really, I think, the difference between wisdom and contentment and being discontented and expecting everything to be comfortable. Now Solomon said another thing I want to come to. He says that he, has, he tells a story about a man in a certain town where a king, mighty and powerful, is going to lay siege to this town. I'm betting that the king was Solomon. You know, he says, I know about this. And he, I'm betting he, it was Solomon and, and uh, you know, or one of his king cronies or whatever, you know, in the king club. And, and, and he, he says, I watched this town hunker down as we built all these siege works. And that means that basically they're walled in and protected from their enemy. But all the enemy has to do is wait until they starve or run out of water or panic. But either way... The people on the outside of the wall can just wait them out. And he says, and then this town had this wise old man, this poor man. And again, he uses a reference that makes us picture an older man. But, it, you know, I've seen wisdom in 14-year-olds that exceeded the wisdom of certain 90-year-olds that I've known. So in this case, this wise poor man convinces the people in the town by saying probably, look, you know, I've been around and I've seen a lot of things. I'm going to tell you how this is going to work out. If we keep holding out and thinking that they're going to give up and go away, we'll end up, you know, flipping a coin to see whose kid we're going to eat today. And I don't mean a little goat, right? This is how these things went. One of these days we're going to run out of water and find ourselves willing to drink anything. You know, one of these days we're going to fight dysentery and sickness and disease because of the choices we've had to make, thinking that we can wait them out. Maybe at this point we accept that some hard luck has come our way and the best thing to do is to surrender and make the most of what comes next. Of course, Solomon says, from the point of view of the conqueror, that was a smart choice. And I admire this guy for leading his people away from certain destruction. And yet his people thought that he was foolish and his people will never remember that he saved their lives and gave them life that produced new opportunities that they hadn't planned for, but they made the most of because they had to. In other words, 
Wisdom says, okay, so we haven't had a worldwide pandemic lately, but we'll make the most of it. And we'll figure out how to carry on and do the best we can and give God all the glory. Anyway, so what he's saying, whether he meant to or not, is that the man's wisdom led to his submission. And he's recognized once again that the people he considers better off than him are the ones who are content, wise, and humble. So the formula for contentment, it would seem, is humility, wisdom, and then you get contentment. And isn't that really what we all want? Parents, you say that what you want more than anything for your children is happiness. But if it's all said and done, you want them to be content. Because happiness is very vague in my mind. It could mean a lot of things to a lot of people. I, I don't have happiness now because my team didn't make it to the Super Bowl. Well, that's silly, right? Contentment is a different thing entirely than happiness. So what do we want for our children? We want them to have a good life and they, they would be content. And I'm going to tell you that what Solomon means for us to understand because of his folly, because of his poor example, is that when he stopped using wisdom and he stopped submitting himself to God's authority, when he started being the hottest thing since sliced bread, he started believing he was the hottest thing since sliced bread. Like he, he started believing all the press releases that were being put out about him. He started believing all the things that the visiting uh, Queen of Sheba and all these other people would come and say to him, oh, you are the most, you smell better than everybody else. You look better than everybody else. You're richer than everybody else. God must surely love you. And he starts believing it. And so his lack of humility canceled out his wisdom and his contentment. So the most important thing anyone can do in my book and according to the way I read these stories is to admit that you are not the center of the universe, that you are not the most important thing or person, that your desires of the flesh aren't really as important as you might want them to be. Your comfort really isn't as important as all of that. that. That you can think of yourself as a good person, but according to whose standards? If you're good in the eyes of your contemporaries, then that's nice. But on judgment day, will God evaluate you by what your neighbors think of you or by what God knows about the condition of your soul? What's in your heart? Humility says, I live the best life I can and I try to be content and wise in all things, but I'm lost without a savior who is more than I could ever hope to be. And for what, for reasons only understood in the heart of God, the creator saves me anyway. Humility says I can't save myself. And for some reason, God really wants me to be saved. So all I have to do then is accept that. See, so the first act of contentment in everyone's life, hopefully, that really transforms your nature for the remainder of your existence, which goes into eternity, thanks be to God. Your first big change in nature is when you are content with the fact that you can't save yourself. 
When you're content with the fact that God finds you worthy no matter what standards you hold yourself to, that God finds you savable no matter what standards you hold yourself to, and that God is going to save you no matter how much you try to do to win God's favor and then fall short. So humility is the first critical ingredient in contentment. And during the span between true humility and contentment, wisdom fills in all the gaps. All the nooks and crannies. It's like a fluid that finds its way into every crack, every seam, and then becomes more than the stuff that it's made of. And the wisdom that you have is the wisdom of the ages. It's the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the Creator. It's the wisdom that isn't so much about how smart you are, but how you understand contentment and the way you interpret things. And so you can get up in the morning and brush your teeth, comb your hair, and put on clean clothes. And every person you encounter from the, from the companion in your home to the person you work with, or the people you encounter as you do your life's business of shopping and, and, and creating and, and uh, providing. And, and somehow you recognize that you are having a better day because they're here. Because you're not starving. Because you slept in a warm bed last night. Because you were dry and there was rain outside. Because you have so much to be grateful for that you can hardly feel mistreated or rejected by God over a handful of discomforts and a bit of bad fortune. When you have the wisdom to recognize that your eternal existence puts these small moments of discomfort and even great suffering in perspective, and there's really great reason for joy because your life has been given to you every day by the hand of God. And this is, what, this is what Solomon's trying to say to us. He's saying, just like an older adult says to a kid, if only I'd known then what I know now. And God says, well, know it now. Let us pray. Oh God, I thank you for your word now. I pray truly that the wisdom from your spirit is all that remains in the hearts and minds of your people. I pray for their contentment, Lord. And I pray they find the humility to surrender to you, welcome your wisdom and the contentment that only you can give. Amen. Amen.